0: Welcome to the Tech.eu podcast, where we discuss some of the most interesting stories in European tech today. Let's do this. Welcome to the Tech.eu weekly roundup podcast, where we talk about some of the hottest news items that crossed our desk this week. As to be expected, it was a flurry of activity. So let's dive right in. Robin, what do you got?
1: Yes. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in. Um, In the absence of our dear Nick Stevens, I'll be the AI guy for the week. Uh, But I wanted to talk about the AI wars that are heating up. That's, of course, true globally, but it's also true in Europe. And it's most definitely true over in London. Uh, Just to set some context, uh, the UK's Prime Minister, Rishi Sunak, uh, very recently during the London Tech Week, uh, said that Britain could be the global home of artificial intelligence regulation, uh, pitching London as a tech hub to industry leaders and, and whatnot, and basically urging them to get busy with both the opportunities and the challenges of AI. Um, there was also a recent report from KPMG that said generative AI systems alone uh, could provide a £31 billion boost to the UK economy. Uh, so in, with all of that as context, uh, OpenAI said this week that it's, uh, um, it's opening a London office, which is its first office outside of uh, the US, where it's headquartered, of course, in San Francisco. Um, and that's relatively big news because Um, He's, well, the CEO, Sam Altman, has been on sort of a European tour. Uh, He's been visiting lots of cities, lots of policymakers. So choosing the UK over everyone else is actually quite a big deal. Uh, OpenAI said its London office would focus on research and engineering, which is also an interesting point. Uh, But the company neglected uh, to say when the office would actually open and how many people it aims to employ. Uh, But at the same time, it's already advertised four roles for the new office, including a security engineer and a head of UK policy. Um, Now it's interesting that they chose London because there's of course a number of AI companies operating here already. Uh, Stability AI is one of them and they've been losing uh, top executives in. recent times, so less good news for them, uh, including their head of research, their chief operating officer, their chief information officer, VP of products, um, left stability AI uh, in the wake of a rather critical article about the company and its uh, founder and CEO uh, by Forbes. If you haven't checked that out, you definitely should. Um, And so it will be interesting to see how the British unicorn behind stable diffusion Uh, will be able to shape its own future uh, in this fast-moving field and also very extremely competitive field uh, with OpenAI, of course, opening its office uh, very soon. Uh, And then I also wanted to note that Demis Hassabis, who's the co-founder and CEO of DeepMind, which is, of course, the British AI research laboratory that was uh, started in London and later acquired by Google, uh, he said his engineers are building an AI system dubbed Gemini that will be more capable than that of... ChatGPT, which was built by OpenAI. So that's fighting words right there. And I'm kind of looking forward to seeing how the race uh, goes on. Uh, I also took a look at uh, Sequoia Atlas. Uh, you may remember from last time, uh, but they've just launched that. That's an interactive tool uh, that provides insights into the engineering and, and other tech talents across Europe uh, to have a look at sort of where the AI um, emphasis lies uh, in 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 terms of talent in Europe. Um, I'm quoting from the report, uh, Europe has a standout concentration of dedicated AI practitioners relative to its overall engineering talent pool, 30% higher than in the US and three times as high as in China. So you can also see why it's interesting for US companies to tap into that talent here. And finally, I will note from that same report from Sequoia, Dublin and Zurich have the top per capita concentrations of AI engineers, so not London or Berlin or Paris or Amsterdam. It's Dublin and Zurich, uh, and cities across Europe, of course, are showing momentum. Uh, they've singled out Berlin and Paris, but also Athens, so that's a nice uh, little side note right there.
0: Very nice. Well, it seems like the AI wars are heating up indeed. and. Uh, speaking of U.S. companies heading towards Europe, Kate, you took a look at uh, some numbers.
2: I did. Yes, um, earlier this week, Frontline Growth, which is a um, VC fund that basically helps U.S. companies expand to Europe, released a report where they basically looked at the experience of U.S. software companies expanding to Europe, um, and kind sort of dug, dug a bit into the um, the why's and the the successes and fails and sort of the causes there. And they they sort of made some really interesting points. Like, for example, Europe represents um, nearly 40% of the global revenue for software businesses. And, you know, they actually say, you know, the strength of today's tech system here in Europe makes annoying, um, sorry, ignoring the region a costly mistake. So they make this kind of, you know, slightly like, yeah, you've got to get into it. But then they also factor in that timing is a very important, um, important, important issue because if you do it too early, your company might not have enough traction in Europe, but you do it too late, you may have a local competitor who's already grasps the market. And one thing that really pulls out is when we sort of look at them, look, taking maybe a longer look at, at European startups is they've said kind of those days of the copycat factories are over. But now we're on to sort of ambitious founders with new business models and technically different products. So, and, and then they're also backed by global venture funds with deep pockets, not just European ones. So um, just a few of the key findings very briefly. Um, in terms of entry to market, so where do we think people are going to land if they're expanding their business? Um, the main ones are UK and Ireland, followed by the Nordics and the Netherlands. The main reasons cited there are cultural, for example, being able to speak English, um, comparable buyer behaviour to the US, and they have also said that um, while Germany's GDP, sorry, Germany's GDP is the largest in Europe more stringent regulatory and business requirements make entering the market more challenging, which is not a surprise to anyone who lives in Germany. And it it's quite convoluted. How often, it, however, is more common to uh, establish a second business in, um, Germany or France. So there is always that option. And I think the last thing that I thought was really interesting, and it's, you know, it's an easy to read report, it's got some interesting graphs, was this idea of success amnesia, which is kind of looking at the pitfalls of what happens if people don't sort of have everything in place when they choose to scale to another country. And they basically talk of this problem where companies focus on sales, but they where they really fall down on things like local marketing, community development, brand building at a local level. And the one that shocks me, perhaps, was that 50% of the companies don't have a single marketing resource in Europe a year after landing. So that's pretty diced off.
0: Wow. Yeah, wow. right? <laughs> okay.
2: I was floored, to say.
0: Yeah, thanks for that, Kate. Robin, speaking of expanding into new countries, sometimes expansions are followed by retreats.
1: Yes, sometimes they are. Uh, In this case, uh, the Turkish delivery startup uh, Getir, uh, they are seizing their business over in Spain, uh, laying off their entire workforce, which is more than 1,500 people, so not a small amount, uh, after failing to raise enough capital in a recent funding round, according to uh, a Reuters report and a statement from Spain's biggest trade union, CCOO. Uh, they had some very uh, choice words in a quote, which I'll uh, I'll share with the audience uh, very gladly. Uh, we condemn the disastrous business management of Gettier, which has not known how to grow or have a market strategy in Spain, and now its staff will suffer the biggest harm. So that was a an interesting quote delivered by the union right there. Um, but it's true; like they they've been unable to grow to a, to a decent. Uh, points. Um, The the food delivery market over in Spain is dominated basically by Glovo, uh, which is now owned by Delivery Hero, and then uh, shared uh, by Just Eat Takeaway and Uber Eats. So it's been proven very, very difficult to compete. But I didn't expect Getir to completely, completely leave uh, Spain like that. Um, and it comes also after reports that they've decided to withdraw from France, uh, also due to weak sales. So that's uh, quite a big retreat from two of the biggest markets in Europe.
0: And I guess that puts that question of, are they going to buy Flink to bed mm. as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Indeed. That's a good point. Thanks for that, Robin and Kate. A couple of things that caught my eye this week. I don't like summer. It's too hot. Sun's out too long. I like winter. The downside of winter is that you often need to heat your home. Most of the heat that most of us in Europe enjoy is powered by fossil fuels. Well, if VTT spin out steady energy has their way, we're all going to get our homes heat through nuclear energy. They raised $2 million this week, or announced that they raised $2 million this week. And what they're doing is they're building what they call the LDR-50 reactor. What that is, it's a low temperature, low pressure nuclear reactor. It's uh, apparently going to operate around 150 degrees Celsius and below 10 bar or 145 psi. To put that into perspective, the average fission reactor that we all know and love operates around 300 degrees centigrade, so, you know, significantly cooler. And to put that into further perspective, at the time of its meltdown, the Chernobyl reactor experienced temperatures reaching between 1600 and 2600 degrees. So this is a very, you know, you, you could you could practically wow. put it in your in your back garden and 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 run your home. Uh, the 50 in the LDR 50 moniker refers to the reactor's output, which is 50 megawatts. Uh, Robin, I know, I know you said, uh, was it Hussein Kanji from, from Hoxton tweeted something along the lines of what could possibly go wrong? Something like that. Yeah. So, <laughs> something like that. Yeah. I mean,
1: I mean, it sounds like a weird thing to do, like put a nuclear, uh, reactor in your backyard.
0: Maybe, but according to uh, steady energy CEO, Tomi Naiman quote, the pressure required by the LDR 50 reactor is comparable to the pressure of a household espresso machine.
1: Maybe we've been powering our espresso machines the wrong way all this time.
0: I did send out a tweet. I bet you it, it makes a hell of a cafe macchiato as well. <laughs> Moving along, Algorithmic raised uh, $13.7 million in a Series A round to further their development of algorithms for quantum computers. Uh, and The company's working on, in their words, to exploit the potential of quantum computing to solve currently inaccessible problems. Uh, More specifically, they're working on algorithms for quantum computers, uh, focusing on the life sciences, big pharma industry, that if and when they they do what they say they're going to do, they're going to shave years and, of course, hundreds of millions of dollars off the entire drug discovery development process. So you could see why Big Pharma would want to get involved with saving lots and lots of money.
1: Super interesting stuff that they're building. And I, uh, mm. Sabrina was a speaker at the TechU Summit. I urge everyone to go check out the panel. Uh, the videos are up on YouTube. Uh, but she's a very interesting character. Not only is she like a very impressive Um, you know, deep tech co-founder and CEO, but she's also a professor of quantum information, computing and logic at the University of Helsinki. So quite a pedigree there. And I also like the fact that she can combine those things, like being a professor at the uni and also co-founding her own scale up, Mm -hmm. which I think is something that Europe doesn't do enough of.
0: She was also really fun to talk to off stage. I'll take
1: your word for that because I didn't actually get to meet her.
0: Yeah, she was really cool. She was really cool. Speaking of cool things, ESGVC and the British Private Equity and Venture Capital Association, perhaps better known as the BVCA, uh, put out a report this week. Uh, If you're not familiar with ESGVC, this was an initiative set up by Beringia uh, a couple years ago, and basically it's aimed at or was aimed and is aimed at helping to support portfolio companies as they navigate the sometimes murky and confusing waters of ESG. Fast forward a few years later, and the initiative now has approximately 200 VC firms working together to help their portfolio companies measure and improve their ESG performance. Uh, the report analyzed data provided by some 450 startups backed by leading venture capital firms, including Lakestar, Balderton, Moulton, Highland, you know, the regular players. ESG VC has established 57 questions. Uh, that they believe are key areas for VC firms. And I spoke to ESG VC's co-founder, Henry Philipson, about this.
3: It's a real range of topics that all cut across those environmental, social, and governance factors that investors are increasingly interested in understanding within venture-backed businesses. And it's everything from do you measure your carbon footprint, through to what's the gender pay gap of your company, through to... Do you have the right codes of conduct and training in place to think about the future of AI within your business? Now, that sounds a lot, right, for a small company with a few people working on a, you know, working in a tough circumstance with constrained resources. But that's exactly why we exist. We exist to help entrepreneurs to think in a more efficient way about how to deal with this increasing volume of reporting, regulation, Um, scrutiny from investors, regulators, customers about what you deliver other than financial performance. And it's our belief with ESGVC that it shouldn't be the responsibility of entrepreneurs to try and carry that burden on their own. We as a group of investors want to make that journey much easier for them. So our framework helps companies to identify where there are opportunities for them to think more carefully about their environmental footprint or the way they consider diversity and inclusion within their company. What it's not intended to be is a heavy duty, complex, difficult set of questions that an early stage company could never get to grips with. It's exactly designed to make that journey easier for them.
0: One of the takeaways from the report was that the environmental agenda is lagging in startups. Uh, This sparked a lively discussion on Twitter about the when, where, and how startups should start thinking about and implementing ESG measures, Uh, and some of the most vocal proponents argued that startups need to focus on staying alive before they start thinking about ESG. Here's what Henry had to say.
3: I completely agree that it should be a startup's, you know, reason to exist that they succeed commercially, and so the more that we can do to make those non-financial elements easier for them to digest the better, right? I think it's it's not realistic today to believe that a company can exist on its own and not have to deal with this volume of scrutiny and regulation that is increasingly becoming a factor in their future performance.
0: And we've got a recap of that report over at TechEU, as well as a link to the full report. So if you want to know more about the ESGs, Head on over and give it a look. Robin, I know you got your one more thing and I can see from your show notes that it's way more than one more thing. So I'm just going (laughs) to let you have at it.
1: Yeah, I'm quite conscious that this is the third report that we're basically covering in this podcast recording alone. Uh, But I did want to point out that Antler uh, came out with an interesting report, uh, which is titled Europe's New Tech Founders. Uh, what they've done is basically analysed the academic history, the professional expertise, but also the demographics of uh, some 845 Unicorn founders, 2,500 founders participating in Antler residencies across the globe, and more than 70,000 aspiring founders who applied to Antler in Europe, uh, just to give you an idea of the scope of the research. Um, you can go read all the major takeaways on TechEU, of course, but there were a couple of things that stood out to me. Uh, And one of them is that layoffs are not exactly fun things, but they are happening and a lot these days, and it looks like they're responsible for a whole new generation of startup founders, which is the good news about that. Uh, According to Antler's data, in the 12 months after a technology company announces layoffs, uh, there comes a huge increase, uh, almost 400% actually in applications from employees looking to become tech founders. So there's a big recycling of talent going on. Uh, Just in 2022, the number of employees leaving tech companies that made layoffs to become tech founders has increased by 111%. Which is ah. nothing to sneeze at, right? So the report also states, <laughs> <laughs> and the report also states that Europe's unicorn founders remain notable for their homogeneity, uh, meaning that the typical unic- unicorn founder is a man. The statistic is actually 96% chance that it's a male, uh, most likely almost all white, uh, even though that wasn't in the research. Uh, but let's just assume that, uh, and they are building a tech company in their home country three quarters uh, of the founders that were researched. So it's quite a, the quite a same looking bunch living in the same kind of place type of uh, results in that research. Uh, some good news for future versions of this report, though, when it comes to demographics for new tech founders, they are five times more likely to be women and represent three times more nationalities than Europe's existing unicorn founders. So that actually bodes well in terms of future diversity of the landscape over here, so let's all hope so. Um, Also worth noting, a third of Europe's unicorn founders went to the same 20 universities. Uh, The University of Oxford actually leads the list of the academic institutions that have generated the most unicorn founders in Europe. And finally, McKinsey, Boston Consulting Group, but also Rocket Internet are the companies that Europe's unicorn founders most commonly worked at before starting the companies that have reached billion dollar valuations. So there you have it.
0: That makes sense. They Mm. also lay off the largest amount of people, right?
1: Yeah. I guess uh,
0: (laughs) one thing ties it to another. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thanks for that, Robin. I mean, uh, folks, this has been, you've probably noticed, this has been a slight departure from our normal format. But I didn't want to leave Fiona hanging for the weekend. So, Robin, if you got a dad joke, now would be the time.
1: I've got two. And you know why? Because you basically stole mine from last week. So I'm going to give it to you. I did. I have invented a pencil with two erasers. But it turns out it was pretty pointless. <laughs> that was my dad joke from last week. and I'll... Very good. And this one is actually one that I sent to Fiona over Instagram because she's not part of the show this week this is a a tribute to her. Have you guys ever been to Switzerland?
0: Yes. No way.
1: Well, do you know what the best thing about Switzerland is? Cheese? Snow? Uh, I don't know either, but uh, the flag is a big plus. (laughs)
0: Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for joining us. That is it. We are out of here. Have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. Ciao, ciao, ciao.